and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, oh, those Galileans are always causing problems. <laughs> Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word, the recounting of this history of your work as your church began. Lord, may you honor this time in your word and this entire atmosphere of the worship we are giving to you of heart, mind, and body. May you honor it through the work of your Holy Spirit, speaking to each of us what it is we need to hear this day. Those gathered here in this moment, in this place, in this very this finite time, those who will or who are watching now and who will be watching in the future, Lord, I pray for your spirit to work, to bring to bear your truth into our lives and into our world. Lord, you know every person, you know every name, you know every situation, every circumstance, every backstory. You know every sin, secret, sorrow, scar, and shame. But Lord, speak. And as you speak, may we listen. May we hear from you what it is we need to hear to be released from all those things that have so plagued us in the past. Lord, may we be comforted in the present and empowered in the future to be like those first Christians, devoted to you, focused on you, truly loving you, and loving one another in such a way that the world was changed. Lord God, you are well aware in so many ways, the church, big C, believers everywhere. In a lot of ways, we've, we've lost our way because we stopped following the way. And Lord, may this be a morning we are drawn back ever closer to the simplicity, the beauty, the power of Jesus rising from the dead and setting us free from sin. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as we look upon Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, it's been a wild ride for the early church here just these first few weeks. 
The church in these first few weeks had already experienced an abundance of blessing, but also had just experienced its first internal conflict, its first internal crisis. We looked at this last week. In the midst of the early church, they were so excited and they were so overwhelmed by the good news of Jesus rising from the dead and forgiving our sins and creating a new life. The, the new church was so excited and so overwhelmed that they just met together continually. And they were overwhelming in their graciousness and their generosity to one another. People were selling property and giving the proceeds to the church to be distributed so that there was no one needy among them. No one was oppressed and no one was impoverished in the first church. And in the midst of that generosity, yes, even the beauty and the power of new life in Jesus, sin rears its ugly head. Satan entered into the thought processes of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, or more technically Aeneas and Sapphira, but anyway, we, we pronounce it in, in English ways. And they had conspired to sell a piece of property and then to, 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 uh, to say that the property was worth this amount that they sold it for, but they lied. And it's not that they sold it and then kept some for themselves. We can do that as Christians. It was that they lied about it. They wanted the, the, the esteem of the people, the acclaim of, 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 of the others. They wanted the oohs and ahs. They wanted the, the, the props for their generosity. And in this, 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 this intense struggle, sin being in the camp of God, they lied, they were confronted, and God struck them dead. Very drastic, very severe judgment. It got people's attention. But here's what happened. Luke records that great fear came within the church. At this time, the church probably numbered somewhere around 15,000 people. But it also created great fear among those who <clears throat> were outside the church because the, the, the first Christians were still integrated into daily life in the city of Jerusalem. They were everywhere. 15,000 may have been about 15% of the population of the entire city. That's a lot. And Christians were everywhere. And so people outside the church began hearing that God kills people for lying. Not exactly the best tagline or promotional material for evangelistic rally nowadays. But back then they understood that God was real. God was doing something and taking in the need to take God seriously. So the people in the church responded, not with cowering before God in fear, but with greater reverence, greater esteem, greater worship, greater courage. Because see, God wasn't playing around, and, and the gospel wasn't just a nicety to make life better. It wasn't just a life enhancement program. It was life and death, spiritually, physically, eternally. That response to fear was not cowering. Instead, it was courage, and it was a renewal of genuine commitment. The apostles, the, the, the 11 who had followed Jesus and been selected by him, along with a 12th who had also followed Jesus but didn't make the first cut. He was first off the bench, a man named Anna, another man named Ananias, the good one, not the bad one. 
The 12 apostles every day stood in the temple in the center of Jerusalem, a massive complex where thousands of people came every day to worship, to pray, to sacrifice animals according to their customs. And every day the apostles would preach and teach about Jesus. So there was no more need for butchering the goat and and, and the cows and the bulls and the doves because Jesus had been the sacrifice. That's what they preached. And instead of, instead of sacrificing an animal, Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf, and he took our sins, and now we can be forgiven. Not until just next year, but forever. Every day the, the apostles preached and did wonders. They did these amazing healings. The number of believers continued to increase. Luke says that they were added to their number. And that doesn't just mean people were saying, oh, this Jesus, yeah, he sounds pretty cool. That's, that's a good idea. I, I, I kind of want that, that, that get out of hell free card. Maybe that'd be great. You know, Jesus, let's just, let's just add him to life. No, instead it was like, Jesus is really the Messiah. Uh, our people, the Jews, were saying, thousands of years we waited for this one. He's the Messiah. Not exactly what we expected, but what we got is better than what we expected. Because it's not just about political power and, 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 and things like that. It's about, it's about release from our greatest oppressor, sin, Satan, and self. And eternally knowing that we are loved that we are forgiven, that we are adopted, we are included, we are made new. See, the good news is truly great news. Added to their number means those who personally believed in Jesus. And it wasn't just praying a prayer or, or, or making some kind of a decision. There was public confession a declaration of allegiance to Jesus. And yes, there was baptism because baptism was the marker from going outside to inside, going from them to us. Acts 2.41, those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. These new believers practiced the core four, which is still applicable to every Christian. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is both communion, which we observe every week, but it's also meals together, life together, because the early church met in houses, not in buildings like this. And they devoted themselves to prayer. It was in these homes. The first Christians were so marked by generous and gracious giving and receiving, so much so that there was no needy persons among them. And that gains a reputation. There is power in that. Luke also in here, this includes one little subtle thing. And it's so kind of, it's very easy to overlook in our day and age. But back then, it was, it was, it was paradigm shifting. In verse 14 of chapter 5, he says, and men and women believed. This is the first time women are mentioned as coming to faith in Jesus and being added to the number and being included. 
Now, women were already always a part of the ministry of Jesus from the very beginning. Luke, in his, his gospel account, records that, yeah, it was the women who helped support and finance and fund the ministry of Jesus. We see earlier in the book of Acts that, yes, there were a number of women involved in the early core group of the church, that 120 that gathered together after the resurrection. Women were always integrally involved. I think I just mispronounced integrally. Billy's got some editing to do on the video. Make me sound a lot better on that one, Billy. Integrally. I still think I mispronounced. I can't say it, but you know what it is. It's such an incredibly important verse because... For the first time, women are acknowledged as coming to faith in Jesus. You see, in that time, in that culture, women lacked agency. They lacked individuality, especially in terms of faith. The the whole Jewish system, especially back then, was exceptionally patriarchal. Not just the patriarchs, but, but, but... average, everyday fathers and husbands lorded over the women in their lives. And so the faith of the father became the faith of the household. And Luke here says women were believing for themselves. You see, Christianity changed the world for women. And this is all as a part of God's plan. It's all intentional. The very first witnesses to Jesus rising from the dead were women at a time when their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law because they were considered inherently, naturally unreliable and untrustworthy. God says, I will show you because they're created in my image as well. They're going to be the first ones to witness the birth of the new world, the true new world order, life in Jesus the women go back to the, 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 the disciples, the ones hand chosen by Jesus to carry on his legacy. And they said, Jesus is risen from the dead. And they said, it's far too early to be that crazy. No, really, he's alive. Sure. Let's go see for ourselves. Then they believed when they saw the empty tomb. You know, the disciples were a bit slow on the uptake as well. In Christianity, women were allowed to believe for themselves independently of the faith of their husbands or their fathers. And from now on, in Luke's history, the history of the church, women figure prominently. They figure prominently in other books of the New Testament as well. You see, the new church had come to change the world. And God, through his son Jesus, through the church, radically did. The apostles, back to them, their ability to heal brought in huge crowds. Luke denotes that it was primarily the apostles who had the ability to heal. It It wasn't every single Christian, although every single Christian received the very same Holy Spirit but it was the apostles and then another select few who had the ability to do miraculous healings. And Luke does include one strange comment, and admittedly it's strange. As people were coming to to have the apostles heal them, Peter, as the lead apostle, of course, gets most of the press and most of the name recognition. 
And Luke records that people were so desperate for healing that they would just lay their sick on beds and hoping that as Peter walked by, his shadow would be able to touch them and be healed. Now, Luke technically doesn't say that just contact with Peter's shadow healed, but that was what was expected. And it's it's very, very possible. And you can see, read something like this and say, okay, yeah, this whole Christianity thing, yeah, just it's myth. You know, it's just made up stuff. Whoever was doing the stuff back then just had a bunch of goofy juice. You know, and that was actually one of the first criticisms against the apostles. It's like, you guys are already drunk, and they're like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. As I said, during that sermon, I guess they didn't meet my, some of my family members who were drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning, but the apostles weren't. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when Luke records a story like this, remember, it's just, it was just like slipped in there, wasn't it? Just very, very subtle. You see, Luke was a medical doctor. He was, he was highly educated. He was extremely precise in his language. He was not given to exaggeration. And as a medical doctor, he was, was very dismissive and disapproving of magic. And magic was very prevalent and very powerful in that ancient world. We'll actually come into a story here in a few chapters about a magician who was a worker of sorcery, who was able to manipulate the natural world world through spiritual forces. Luke was very dismissive of that. So he was not prone to giving magic credence. We've also got to put in context, this story of healing from a shadow is anti-myth. And what I mean by that is this. In ancient mythologies and other stories, shadows represent darkness, fear, doubt. They represent turmoil. They represent the unknown. There is no example of shadows healing, of shadows representing the light or goodness or bringing good things into the world. So when Luke includes this, it is very anti-mythical. And then lastly, there's one other proof that's irrefutable. People kept coming. Sideshows die out. Snake oil salesmen get run out of town. Some of the great supposed healers, the faith healers that still plague our society in so many ways, They have seasons in the sun, and then their ministries diminish after the the euphoria runs out, and the miracles come to be determined as not very miraculous, but yet they keep plying their wares. But in the history of the church, thousands upon thousands of people became followers of Jesus And today, it is not thousands upon thousands. It's not hundreds of thousands upon hundreds of thousands. It's not millions upon millions. It's billions upon billions. People kept coming, and they were healed. As the religious leaders of the Jewish people saw the favor of the people, the crowds that were being gathered, and the actual power the apostles were demonstrating. 
Remember the apostles, Peter and John, had already been brought in and interrogated because of the power. They healed a man blind from birth, a man who'd been blind for over 40 years, a a well-known, established figure. He was healed. He was set free from his disability. It was an undisputable, irrefutable miracle. And And those apostles were brought in saying, how did you do this? Because the, 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 the Jewish leaders actually had people who prayed for healing and, and God answered some of those prayers. And as I said, there was others who were able to manipulate physical things through access of spiritual powers. They were able to do this as well. But there was something different about the way the apostles did it because it was in the name of Jesus. It's not themselves or any other kind of magical incantation. So now all of the apostles are arrested. All 12 are brought in. They are interrogated. And in spite of that and what they went through, they said, we cannot stop talking about Jesus. You see, their experience, their experience trumped everything else because they saw Jesus die and they saw him be dead, dead really dead, a sword or a a spear through the side, puncturing the heart, you don't come back from that. They knew where he was buried. They saw him die. They began their grief process. And then in the midst of that, their grief process was interrupted. Their grief turned to joy because Jesus was standing there among them. Not as an apparition, not as a source of energy, not as some kind of extra, extraordinary, extraterrestrial being. As a person, they were dumbfounded. They saw him. They heard him. Yes, they even touched him. They saw Jesus alive after dying. And it wasn't just once. It wasn't just a mass hypnosis, a mass hysteria. It wasn't just a one-time thing. Over and over again, over the period of 40 days. And it wasn't just them. It wasn't just the apostles. It was other believers here and there. More than 500 in total saw Jesus. And after the initial freak out, they were set on the course of telling others about Jesus The apostle said, we cannot obey you. We must obey God because of what we have seen and heard and touched. Jesus is alive. You may not believe it. You may not like it. You may want to reject it, but it's what happened. You either either disbelieve, you deny it, you doubt, or you devote. Because Jesus rose from the dead, No one else held authority. Because Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else can cause fear. Because the greatest fear is the fear of death. And if you take that away, you ain't got nothing to be afraid of. Back in that first arrest, they they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They reiterate that argument here. And not only was it their experience, but it was the evidence of the Holy Spirit. 
The evidence of the Holy Spirit working to actually bring healing to people. This irrefutably confirmed their calling and their mission. Speaking of the miracles, Luke always is very muted in his discussion of the miracles. It's always very matter-of-fact, much like a medical doctor would describe certain things happening. There's no embellishment. There's no, there's no unusual verbiage. There's no flowery language. His recounting of the apostles' miraculous reefs from prison is rather humorous, though. They're wondering what happened. Where did the guys go? Someone walks in. Oh, there they are. They didn't run. They didn't hide. They didn't disguise their appearance. They went right back out into public in full view. And if you're a cinematographer wanting to do this, this is prime comedic material. Because as, as the Jewish leaders are, are fussing and, and hewing and hawing and just all, all fuming about this, you can picture in your mind some guy at the window looking down into the courtyard. Uh, guys, not now, we're busy, we're arguing, we've got to figure out what happened. Uh, guys, and as they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting, he's like, um, guys, and it, it's someone is very anonymous. They probably call him, shut up. You're not a part of this discussion. You can really milk this for a lot of comedy. Guys, down there. So the way Luke describes things is just very matter-of-fact. There's no embellishment. One thing that's important to point out about this miraculous release from prison by the angel, the apostles got rearrested, and they still got punished. Sometimes when God delivers us from something, the deliverance is merely a delay not a complete escape. Let's move on to this amazing man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most esteemed and influential rabbis of all time. He was the first of only seven rabbis to be given the esteemed title Rabban, our master. He was so influential that after his death, those who mourned him said that basically the light of God's word has gone out and we are left in darkness. That's how you eulogize someone, you know. He died, the world will never be the same. It's no use even going on because they're dead. But he was so highly esteemed. You can see he was a brilliant, brilliant man. We will learn an awful lot about one of his students a young man named Saul, later in the year. In arguing for leniency and temperance, Gamaliel lists a couple of previous revolutionaries whose efforts came to naught. And these are just two examples. He could have chosen many others. The Jewish people naturally were very rabid against the Roman occupation. Rome was a merciless occupier. People were killed. People were taken advantage of. The taxations were high. Their spirits were crushed. Their autonomy was taken away. And their history is just rife with, with charismatic leaders leading revolts, gathering insurgency groups against them. And so Gamaliel just, just references to 
A guy named Theudas who had about 400 followers. He came to Nod. Judas the Galilean, as I said, those Galileans were always difficult people. They were hill folk. Hill folk are always problems. I have a lot of relatives who were hill folk, so yeah, nothing against them. But Judas led a pretty significant revolt against Roman occupation, probably about 30 years or so before uh, Jesus' resurrection. But it came to nothing. All of them came to nothing. All of these figures would rise up. They would stir up a crowd. They would, they would lead this, this hopeless effort against the Roman occupation, and then they would die. And as they died, they stayed dead. And as they stayed dead, their followers became disillusioned and dispersed and went on to life as normal. Not the Christians, obviously. And as Gamaliel makes this emphasis, there's a very subtle nod, a very subtle allusion to how the first Christians were so different. Because see, after death, the followers of the false leaders dispersed. After Jesus' death, the followers of Jesus gathered together and kept meeting together. And not only did they meet, they increased They grew, and they grew stronger and more bold in their message and in their mission. You see, that's a testament to the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, the apostles and and a select other few had the power to heal. Most Christians didn't. But every Christian receives the Holy Spirit, and when every Christian has the Holy Spirit, one of the greatest signs and markers and works of the Holy Spirit is that we actually get along and love one another and tolerate one another and put up with one another. If you'll take just a few moments just to look around, there is nothing to bring us together. We have, we have Raiders fans here, not to mention Rams fans and Dodgers fans and Giants fans. Oh, I could split the church in about 30 seconds. All hail the Seahawks and the Mariners. Um, we come from different ethnicities and different educational backgrounds. We come from different parts of the states. We welcome to, to the beautiful God's chosen land of the coast. We welcome those from the, ba- the valley and the basin and the bay. We even welcome those from the Midwest from time to time. They're t- they, they, have to, they have to give more than a tithe. But anyway, we, we, it's, it's graded membership, depending on where you're from. You, you see... There, there, there's no reason for this group to assemble at all on a Sunday morning. And there's also no reason for us to love one another like we do. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. See, see everything else in the world will, will disconnect us, will divide us, will, will put us into different camps. But Jesus is the one thing we agree on, and it's the most important thing. And because it's the most important thing, we can love one another, and we are loving one another as a church. You see, that's the true power and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, is that in spite of our differences, our selfishness, our wants, our needs, our desires, our self-centeredness, all those kind of things, we are one in Jesus. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does. Gamaliel talks down the enraged Sanhedrin from the execution. Instead, the the apostles are merely flogged. Flogging is still an absolutely inhumane, horrific, awful punishment. Involves being whipped 39 times across the back while you're hunched over and tied to a post. The Mosaic Law prescribed a limit of 40 lashes as a punishment for these, these kinds of severe crimes. And since the law prescribed 40, what the religious leaders did is I said, well, let's make it 39 just in case someone miscounts. Because, you know, in, in the work of, of beating and bloodying somebody, you might get a little distracted by the screams, the wails, the cries, the absolute torment that you're inflicting, and you could lose count. And, and the last thing you want to do is when you're beating somebody to within an inch of their life, the last thing you want to do is break the law. So let's keep it at 39, just in case you miscount. In Jewish culture, flogging was a sign of great dishonor and shame. But in Christ, in Christ, it was a sign of honor. Not flogging in particular, although Jesus was flogged, but suffering, being rejected, being abused, being oppressed, being mistreated for the name of Jesus was a sign of honor. The Apostle Peter, who endured that flogging, about 20 years later would write these words. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. So what do we do with all this? It's go time, just like it was for the first church, so it's go time for us as well. In your own personal life, are you more, are you courageous for the Lord or are you cowering before people? Number two, for skeptics, how do you answer Gamaliel's argument? The church is here and it's growing exponentially. Gamaliel's wisdom is if this is of God, it will not stop. And if it is of God, get on board. If you're fighting against God, let's do a quick tally. God one, Ananias and Sapphira zero. God one, Sanhedrin, or God two, Sanhedrin zero. God doesn't lose. The church continues to grow. Then lastly, and I say this with as much pastoral love, care, and, and, and passion as I personally can. If you suffer for being a Christian, make sure you are suffering for being Christ-like and not for being a jerk. <laughs> for the love of God, do not be a jerk, but be Christ-like. Love people like Jesus. That was his command. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus spoke truth, Yes. And truth for some today is, is offensive and hurtful. Truth can still be spoken in love. 
But truth spoken in love is stronger and more reinforced when all of the actions, when all of the relationship there is one that is proved, your love, your care, your concern, your devotion, your commitment to the other person. So love one another like Jesus. And the church will continue to be unstoppable. I'd like to have uh, Mike and the guys come back on the stage as we prepare for a time of communion. Uh, we still have a delay of shipment for our little normal prepackaged communions. So we'll have one cup with the bread and one cup with the juice. Would you please stand as we prepare to sing and just prepare our hearts for a time of communion together? Use this time to praise God along with the song. Use this time to simply silently pray. Repent of your sin. Renew your faith in Jesus. Receive forgiveness. Rejoice in the hope that you have. Communion here is open to all who are followers of Jesus from, from the, the new in faith to the seasoned veterans, to those whose faith is small as a mustard seed, to those whose faith has grown into a mighty oak and whatever other imagery you want to use. This is a time when Jesus invites you to celebrate what he did for you. And so if you'd like, come forward and receive communion after the song is done. Please just do so in an orderly fashion. If you'd prefer to remain standing where you are, just want to sit where you are, just raise your hand and some elements will be brought to you by some of our servers. Let us pray and enter into a time of focused worship on thanking Jesus for what he's done for us on the cross. Lord Jesus, to you we are so grateful and so thankful for the love you expressed and showed in dying for us. Lord, thank you for taking our sin. But Lord, thank you for not leaving us there, but instead conquering death, giving us hope, giving us eternal life, giving us this power of living life differently. And we are forever grateful. Lord, may you be honored in the meditations of our minds and our hearts and all that we give to you during this time. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.